This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. When COVID-19 first hit in 2020, there were expectations that New Zealand's already high property prices would probably fall. Instead, New Zealand residential property has continued to climb, reaching a year-on-year growth rate of around 30%. In this week's call, we're joined by CoreLogic's Chief Economist Calvin Davidson to look at the year ahead for New Zealand property. What differences have tighter lending rules and rising interest rates already made? How have the mindsets of buyers and sellers changed? And what's happening in the country's auction rooms? And could 2022 finally be the year we see a fall in house prices? Calvin began by outlining some of the data signaling that a market shift could be on the cards. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, you know, an interesting time in the housing market. This has been, been a big boom, of course. I mean, a boom, frankly, that nobody anticipated after, after COVID. If you, if you go back to the first lockdown, people were expecting 10 or 15% falls in house prices and, you know, mass unemployment and these things. So to have the, the boom in property prices that we've had is, is quite um, quite unexpected, and uh, so. But now we're at a turning point, and I think the evidence of that coming through is is getting clearer by the day. And really, you know, a lot of it for me is 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 a mindset change. And people that, that psychology of the property market is hard for an economist to quantify, um, but it can it, it certainly matters. Expectations matter, and it and it comes it can change pretty quickly. So so I think that's now what's happening is the sense that buyers have a bit more pricing power, maybe putting in sneaky offers. Vendors thinking, well, you know, I've had one offer, perhaps three or four months ago, they might have waited for the second or third or tenth. Now they get their first offer and might be thinking, well, that could be as good as I get, I'll take it. So there's, there's that mindset change is, is, is real uh, and, it, and it matters, as well as, of course, fundamentals like, like credit availability and interest rates and these things. So... It's a really interesting juncture, as it normally is in the property market. So really, as I, as I put here on the slide, what lies ahead, as, as everybody always likes to know, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, some thoughts about uh, what the factors that will drive the market and, and where we kind of headed. So, I mean, I'll, I'll run through briefly where we've been and kind of where we currently stand and then what lies ahead in the year. Now, there's, there's probably, hopefully this isn't, Jargon. I, I, for me, it's it's a slowdown, a soft landing. It's um, it's not a major crash. We're we're still in that camp that thinks there's enough supportive factors there to prevent a big downturn. But certainly, there's other factors that point to a clear slowdown. So it's slowdown, not downturn for us. Um, but there are some things that we're going to be watching pretty closely. And for me, unemployment rate's a key one. If that stays really low, we should be able to avoid a hard landing. But if we do see some jobs start to be lost, then it probably tips the other way and we are looking at more significant falls in house prices. So so that's kind of where we're, where we're sitting, the the unemployment rate being a, a key variable to watch. And then, yeah, buyer's market, I've, I've probably covered that off a little bit already. We can we can chat a bit, bit more about that too. So, yeah, sales slowdown really set to continue. 
I think this, this sales slowdown that we're seeing now, I think really has been in train for a while. This isn't just a new thing. Really, if, if you look back through the data and, and remove COVID distortions, I think you could really see a, the start of a slowdown in sales around about June, July last year. Just got distorted by by August lockdown and, and, you know, in a lockdown you get sales falling away. They get recouped the following months. So you get volatility in the data. Uh, makes the trend a little bit harder to see. But I think that, that trend really has been in play for a while and you can see it clearly on this chart here on the left um, sales volumes month by month across the country as a whole the, the green bars are the uh, Januaries of each year and you can see there the latest January really low lower than any of the previous seven or eight years so a really quiet month for sales in January but but also the red and, and purple bars there for December and November also also down down year on year. So, so as I say, this trend for slowing sales has been in play for a little while and it's set to continue. Credit's getting harder to get, interest rates going up, affordability stretched, all of these pressures on the market. Got to acknowledge, though, of course, that again we've got we've got COVID effects in here, and there could be there could be some short term variability as well through uh, people not wanting to get out and about, fearing getting Omicron, uh, not wanting people in their house at an open home, and possibly bringing COVID into their house. Maybe some real estate agents have been off sick as well. So there's a lot of a lot of temporary factors that are that are possibly distorting things. So got to acknowledge that, but certainly this trend is, is set to continue. Uh, around the main centres on the right-hand side here, this is this is the latest three months of sales compared to a year ago, and you can see I mean everywhere's everywhere's down. So you know this the, the upswing we had in property values over or the, the property market in general over the past sort of eighteen months really widespread. Every part of the country was was part of the upswing, um, but now the signs of slowdown are becoming evident right across the country too. And so um, so yeah, you can see here the, the downturn across all of these are the main centres but this is evident in other parts of or smaller parts of the country as well. Nationally down 22%, uh, Auckland, Hamilton, Tauranga down a bit more than that, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin down a bit less but still down. So it's, it's, there was the broad-based upswing, now it's the broad-based downswing as well. Okay, so when you see sales activity slow, you tend to also see uh, property values slow after a lag of sort of two, three, four months, something like that. And we're certainly seeing property value growth easing now as well. So a couple of charts here. These, This is the CoreLogic House Price Index. On the left-hand side here, we've got the annual change in, in dark blue and, and the quarterly change in, in purple. Um, so you can see, well, let's look at the annual change. I mean, it's still pretty strong, no doubt about that. We're still running at 26 27% in terms of annual change, but it's past that turning point. And so the, the slowdowns here and that line will continue to to decline. The quarterly change uh, in purple there, it's, uh, you know, you go through a little bit of a sawtooth pattern there, but um, the quarterly change is the real time measure, you know, it's picking up on what's happening right now and you can see that that's certainly slowed too. So so we're past that peak growth and, and we're into that slowdown phase. Uh, if you flick across to the right-hand side there, that's the level of uh, average values around the main centres and yep, there's been the huge boom. We all know about it, the, the sort of dog leg shape on the right-hand side there, just that speed of upturn has been pretty stark and, and right across the country. Auckland, you know, $1.4, $1.5 million on average. Uh, Wellington and Tauranga have passed the $1 million mark in terms of average property values. Christchurch has, has joined the boom as well. The market has been 
flatter for a long time is, is, is now rising pretty sharply as well. So it's it's been really broad based. But just in the last month, you can see the, uh, what are they, the Hamilton and Dunedin lines there. I actually saw prices tick down a bit, so you've, you've got a bit of a an outright fall in, in prices in those markets. So, you know, nothing significant yet or nothing serious, but, again, it's just this this feeling that, that things have definitely turned. And I'd expect these price numbers to, to start to soften even further over the next couple of months. Uh, so I've left a question mark on this heading here, but it's it's just putting it out there as, as a little trend to watch over the next over the next few months. Now you see you hear differing reports on this depending on where you are and, and which agent you talk to or valuer, whoever it is. But just a sign in our figures that, that it's a sense, I guess, a little a little reading the tea leaves thing that the most expensive areas are perhaps showing the signs of weakness the most. And a couple of maps here, these are these are suburb maps around Auckland and Wellington. The size of the circles is the number of properties, but it's for me it's it's the shading that's actually of more interest at this point. And the darker darker shading is, is the more intense growth over the past six months. And the, the redder or lighter shading is is, um, is less growth over the past six months. So, you know, if you sort of cast your eyeball over that uh, that, that Auckland map on the left hand side, you know, it's still a, a more intense tone of, of colouring to the south and to the west. So a bit more growth in house prices still to the south and west, as opposed to the North Shore, uh, the old Auckland City TA area, the CBD area there, where growth has just been a little bit slower. So. Now, we know the markets to the south and west are cheaper, certainly not cheap by, by other parts of the country, but cheaper. And so to the south and west, things are things are still ticking along as opposed to North Shore, Auckland City, that seem to be a bit slower. Those expensive markets where owner-occupiers dominate, you know, it's less less investment, less first-home buyers. So it's more of that, that slow and steady owner-occupier market. And um, that's where perhaps just seeing some signs of prices being a bit softer Nothing disastrous, but but a trend to watch where, where the expensive areas maybe slow first. Similar thing in Wellington, down Wellington City, at the bottom of the right-hand map there, expensive areas in the city itself, showing a bit slower growth, as opposed to Puff Valley up, up the Kapiti Coast where where there's still some some dark shading there. So again, it's 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 nothing sort of earth-shattering, but just a trend to keep an eye on in terms of, of tiers of the market, you know, expensive versus cheap. All right, so the big change. Well, <laughs> what we've seen over the past 12 or 18 months, low mortgage rates, low listings. So um, people could get money cheap and there wasn't much choice, so they just bought property and, uh, you know, the, the prices of those properties that were available on the market went up a lot. So so those were the key drivers for the upswing. Now things turning around pretty pretty sharply in terms of that choice for buyers in the sense that we're shifting into a buyer's market. So... So, yeah, really key change, total listings, more choice on the market, more stock on the market, sitting there for longer and giving buyers a bit more pricing power. Now, I need to point out that this, this rise in total listings isn't necessarily due to a big flood of new listings. The, you know, the stuff coming into the pipeline through new listings is, is sort of just ticking along at normal levels, um, you know, nothing crazy. So we've got a steady flow of new listings. What's happened, as we've talked about, is that sales at the other end of the pipeline are, uh, are falling away. So you've got new listings coming in, sales at the other end of the pipeline falling away. Stock in the middle has a chance to 
to replenish. So that's what we're what we're seeing. That's that's the mechanics of it, and that's creating more choice for buyers. Especially oh, is, that, is that a good indication of um of auctions passing in because they're just therefore auctions passing in the stocks not moving and and you're seeing these the total number of listings increase. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't sort of follow well, auctions are you know at the moment I suppose a very Auckland centric type of thing. So I, I kind of look a bit more broadly, but certainly the stats I've seen on Auckland, uh, auction clearance rates have been really poor in the last sort of few weeks. And I think I saw one, I can't remember the exact area, but a, a reasonably sized chunk of Auckland, I think the auction clearance rate was zero. So yeah, there was no 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 auctions cleared in that area. So, so yeah, um, you know, people not as desperate going to auctions, you know, maybe they're like, well, prices, uh, you know, the uh, reserve price is still too high. Um, things aren't getting cleared now we don't know they might be getting sold out of the auction room I guess but but yeah certainly the auction clearance rates seem to be a pretty good indicator of sentiment at least uh, and you know property is not selling sitting on the market longer so so yeah it's all it's all tied up with I think that shift to to buyers having the power really so um, so yeah it's, but but different trends around the country in Auckland on the left here yes listings are rising. You can see the 2022 line there, total stock on the market is rising and it's now at a point where it's higher than than where it was this time last year, but it's still below where it was in 2020. So yes, things have changed, but there's probably still a feeling out there that it's it's still kind of tight, but getting easier, but still kind of tight compared to history. As opposed to to Wellington on the right-hand side here, there's been a stark change in Wellington where, where new listings are rising really sharply and they're well above where they were in previous years. So this is things are really turning around in, in Wellington. We're seeing this picture in uh, Otago, around Hawke's Bay, uh, Manawatu. So there's, there's quite a, a large number of areas now where Bay of Plenty is another one where this, this listings position is really turning around and, you know, giving buyers the power uh, and, and they're putting in sneaky offers. And I've heard on the odd occasions, you know, they're getting accepted at, at well below asking price. So just again, we're at the, the sense that, that things have, have definitely shifted. Uh, in terms of buyer classification, pretty sort of flagship uh, data set for us. Um, so, and, and lots of lots of interest in these charts as per usual, but the, the one on the left here, this is our buyer classification market share figures broken down into who the different buyer groups are. So you've got you know, first home buyers, mortgage investors, movers. So movers are existing owner occupiers who are who are looking to move around, you know, trade up, trade down, get into the school zone, uh, you know, take the lifestyle property, whatever it is, they're moving from one house to another. So those are the, sort of the three three key groups we're looking at. And, and at the moment, a lot of interest on first-time buyers and um, just some signs now that the first-time buyers are starting to feel the pinch. Now, of course, it's, it hasn't been easy for a long time uh, and, and some first-time buyers have been disappointed or would-be first-time buyers haven't been able to take that leap. But the chart here shows that actually a lot still have been successful. So the red line there is, is first home buyers, and actually their market share has, has been pretty high. So there is this perception they've been struggling, and, and yes, they have. It hasn't been easy, but a lot have, have still been getting in. Now, just signs, though, that that red line might be turning down. So... Um, 
wouldn't be a surprise if that is the case. We know that triple CFA is having a big impact. The loan-to-value ratio speed limit's been cut in half for, for low-deposit finance. Now only, now only 10% of, of debt can go out at a, at a low deposit. Previously, it was 20%. So that, that's going to hit first-time buyers pretty hard too. So no surprises that that red line would have turned down. Uh, and just to illustrate the, the lending position for first-time buyers, chart on the right-hand side here is, is, is looking at owner-occupier lending and, and breaking it down a couple of different ways. The purple line is of all high LVR owner-occupier lending uh, across all owner-occupiers, how much has been going to first-time buyers. So you can see that that number is 70 80%. So, so basically of, of that low deposit allowance that the banks have, pretty much all of it's been going to first-time buyers. So they've, they've monopolised that that low deposit allowance. So now that that low de- deposit allowance has been cut in half, well, of course it's going to hit first-time buyers pretty hard. So, so that's one cut of the data. You can see it coming through pretty clearly in this in this darker blue line. So that's now just looking at first time buyer lending. How much of that is done at a high LVR? See, it's been running at 30, 40%. You know, so basically two in every five first time buyers were taking out the low deposit loan. But look at the tailing off. It's it's completely slumped away from sort of 40% to 20%. So so in, in the course of two or three months, uh, the the basically the number of first time buyers that can get a low deposit loan has has been cut in half. So that's, um, again, expected because that, that speed limit has been tightened. but just goes to show the extra challenge for first-time buyers now. Um, harking back to the left-hand side here, mortgage investors, that's the purple line. They had their heyday about a year ago and, and sort of January, February, March last year before the LVR rules were brought back in, before the taxes were changed, interest deductibility. So they, that purple line there you can see was up at sort of 30%. Those changes were made and it's and it's tailed off, as well as the simple economics of property investment. You know, yields are low, interest rates going up. So the, the, the sums have changed as well on top of the regulatory changes. So so mortgage investors have tailed off. Still a 24% market share. You know, that they haven't deserted the market altogether. Investors are still there, but but much less than they were. And then movers, so the, the black line there being your existing owner-occupiers who are looking to, to move around, back up to 30%. This is a trend we've been anticipating because for a while now, movers have been pretty quiet, stuck where they are due to lack of choice, you know, no listings on the market. They were sitting tight, but couldn't find that ideal next property. So thought, well, I'm going to stay where I am and might renovate rather than, than relocate. Uh, but now, with more listings coming onto the market, have been anticipating that that line rising again, yeah, and now we're starting to see that. So, so a trend to, to watch this year too is, is movers you know, potentially being a bit more active, and I suppose highlighting the gap between uh, debt and equity. So you think you know movers are still using debt in a lot of cases as well, but they've got a bit more equity behind them in this in this market where where credit is is becoming tighter. You know, people with equity don't need to worry about mortgages so much. Should have uh, greater access to the market versus debt-based buyers, first-home buyers, investors. So that maybe that wedge driven between those two groups and, and a bit of a theme for this year. 
All right, and then just a bit of detail about bioclassification geographically, Auckland and Wellington again. Now, these charts are a bit a bit uh, volatile, a bit up and down, but I think the trends are, are similar. So, so first-time buyers starting to feel the pinch in, in Auckland and Wellington. Mortgage investors were active, now a bit quieter, uh, and movers starting to show a bit more activity, apart from in Wellington. So the movers line on that Wellington chart is still really low. So, so that's pro- probably the one exception to the rule. But generally, you know, across the market, we're seeing... We're seeing people with a bit more equity being able to trade a bit more and those relying on debt um, finding it a bit harder. Okay, so um, that's sort of where we've been and where we're at. Uh, I'm going for time, yeah, not too bad. So, so now it's the factors for the slowdown and really I've probably been alluding to these throughout the presentation to be honest and, and fact, focusing again on that on that word slowdown. So it's, it's still for us a slowdown or a soft landing as opposed to a, a crash. So what are the factors? Well, uh, there's no surprises in here. I expect most people would be able to, to you know, list three or four themselves, but, you know, affordability is, is poor. It's, it's been this way for a while, and now we're starting to see the impact of interest rates really showing through as well. And affordability isn't just a first-time buyer problem anymore. I think it's actually a problem right across the market, and so... A couple of key measures we look at on, on the left-hand side here, this chart, years to save a deposit. So that's really relevant for first-home buyers. 12 years now on average to save that deposit, much higher than it's been at previous cyclical peaks. So, yeah, we're a bit of a stretch now for first-home buyers to save that deposit. So affordability really, really poor for them. But also, uh, if you switch to the blue line, share of income required for repayments. So that's where somebody's already got the deposit, they bought a house, they're paying their mortgage. And up until recently, it was it was comfortable. You know, that blue line, if you look back a year ago, was down at about 30%. So fairly low by past standards, mortgage rates were low. You know, servicing the mortgage wasn't that much of a challenge in, in most cases. Now look where it's gone. We're back up to 50% already with the combination of higher house prices, um, but sharply rising mortgage rates. So we've seen this turn around really quickly. And affordability now a problem for people already in the market as well. Maybe they're looking to trade up and, and finding that debt isn't re- re- as readily available or it's more expensive. So, so it's become broader than a first-home buyer issue. Calvin, would that be based on, uh, say, the two-year mortgage rate or the, the floating? How do, how do you measure that in terms of perhaps what more pain we've got to come in, in terms of share of income paying paying off your uh, repayments? Yeah, yeah. So we 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 use the uh, two just standard two year fixed rates in here. We um, we assume an eighty percent LVR, take the standard two year fixed rate um, based on the average house price. So again, it's you know I think when it comes to housing affordability, you've, you've got to look at it's not okay. The levels are important. But it's more the trends and it's where these things lie relative to history and where they lie relative to other centres. So, you know, affordability, it's, it's really hard to look at housing affordability and say, well, it's affordable or it's not affordable. You know, that binary thing is, or the absolute um, level is, you know, not, not an easy thing to talk about. It has to be a relative. Housing affordability is all relative. Um, but yeah, so two-year fixed rate, and, and I've got a chart coming up on, on sort of some thoughts about that. I expect that this this blue line will rise even further as we see mortgage rates go up, so things are going to get tougher. And It's an interesting comparison. Um, if you look at where we are now, about 50% of, of gross average household income required to service a mortgage. It's pretty much back to where it was pre-GFC. 
But pre-GFC, interest rates themselves were 9 or 10%. Now we've got interest rates half that level, yet affordability is as bad as it was then. So it just goes to show how much house prices have risen and um, you know, the challenge that people are facing. And I guess that's your point around employment. If you see employment stay strong, then then it's not as much of a worry. But with higher share of income to, to afford repayments and then people start losing jobs, that's where your sort of views will change from a slowdown to perhaps a, a downturn. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's why I've just got such a close eye on, on the unemployment rate because I think that's the key thing. Around, say, mortgage servicing, you know, people – People have been tested. Remember those serviceability rates? People have been tested at higher mortgage rates. So I don't think the increase in mortgage rates in the market so far need be a disaster. You know, people have been tested at much higher rates. And as long as they keep the job, you know, we'll find ways to, to keep paying the mortgage. So I don't think this on its own is a, is a disaster. But if people start losing jobs, that's where, that's where things start to turn. And so, yeah, really key indicator to keep an eye on there. I mean, I think it's slightly concerning, or not probably more than slightly concerning. We've seen consumer confidence really weak, business confidence really weak. Now, could just be a temporary thing in response to, to Omicron and, and, you know, the, the uncertainty about that. But, you know, the longer business confidence stays soft, the greater the chance of unemployment actually starting to rise, uh, which could tip the balance of the housing market. So, so yeah, unemployment for me is a, is a really key one to, to keep an eye on for sure. Um, yeah, cool. So, um, just a, a little bit of illustration geographically on, on the right-hand side, used to save a deposit. Again, no surprises that every part of the country has seen years to save a deposit increase. And, you know, in, in Tarong, you're looking at sort of 14, 15 years to save that deposit. Christchurch um, has has got worse. Now, remember on these charts, up is, is bad or less affordable. Um, so Christchurch has been getting worse. But this is where that relative point comes in as well, is, is that if you look across those main centres, Christchurch is still more affordable than the others. So, yes, it's got less affordable in its own right, but still more affordable than other parts of the country. So, so that's a, a little interesting comparison to keep an eye on. And, you know, thinking about it from an investment perspective, the flip side, so this is sort of more an owner-occupier type indicator, you know, yes, save that deposit. The flip side of this type of thing for an investor is that it's, it's the yield picture. So we know that yields have fallen across the country, but this, the, the flip side of this chart would suggest that, you know, yes, yields have fallen in Christchurch too, but they're still going to be higher than other parts of the country. So that's, that's I suppose, the investment side of it. And, you know, if you're looking for simply a gross yield, Christchurch will still be better than, than other parts of the country. Cool. So, yeah, and mortgage rates rising. So um, we know there's been a bit of a quiet patch, I guess, for mortgage rates lately. We, we saw the big increases last year. There hasn't been as much change in the, in the past sort of three or four months. We know we had the OCR increase, um, was it last week? Could have been the week before. Um, so now we, we could start to see some renewed pressure on mortgage rates coming through. And I think there have been some changes already. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's more to come. I don't, I don't think the mortgage rate increases are finished, even though there has been a quiet period. I think there's more to come. So um, just a little bit of illustration around that. Uh, chart and left, the two-year fixed rate that we use, it's sort of a, a fairly benchmark rate. Now, it's interesting here that a lot of those, so we know that the official cash rate is going to keep increasing, but there is this sense that a lot of it's already been priced in to, to, use, the, to use the jargon. So... Uh, on the, on the left-hand side of that dotted line, on the left-hand chart, that's what's already happened. See the cash rate's gone up 0.75%, but mortgage rate's up sort of 1.2%. So some of that 
some of that future has, has been pulled forward and been priced in now. Mortgage rates have already been pushed up faster than the official cash rate. However, there's still potentially about 2.25 percentage points to go on the on the official cash rate. So there's a steady series of official cash rate increases still coming. So that will, I think, put renewed upwards pressure on mortgage rates. But the pass-through, because we've already seen quite a strong pass-through, pass-through in the future could be smaller. So, you know, potentially we're looking at sort of another one or one and a half percentage points onto, onto mortgage rates. So, you know, in some senses, cold comfort because it is mortgage rates still going up, but at least it might be smaller and or slower than, than what we'll see in the official cash rate. So that's, um, that's part of it. But... It's not only that, so, you know, there's this, this sense, people say, oh, well, everybody in New Zealand's on a fixed rate, so it doesn't matter. You know, you can do whatever you want, interest rates, not going to matter. And it's sort of in some ways that's that's true, but it completely overlooks the fact that people are always rolling off those fixed rates. And um, actually this year, this is sort of a double whammy. Not only do we have mortgage rates going up, but we've got a lot of people rolling off. And, and the chart on the right-hand side here is, is the refinancing profile or the structure of debt across the country as a whole at the moment, you can see 50.6% of, of loans in the country now are fixed, but due to expire this year, basically, or within the next 12 months. So there's a big chunk of debt rolling over in the next year, and that that chunk of debt is going to be rolling over into a, an environment where interest rates are rising. So, so it's this sort of double whammy, I suppose. When you add in 11.6% of, of loans floating, then you've got you know, you've still got pushing two-thirds of loans that are exposed to higher interest rates straight away. So this is this is a pretty key factor for the market this year. Um, yes, mortgage rate increases could be slower and smaller, but they're still going to rise, and um, that's coming at a time when a lot of debt is, is rolling over as well. So if I if I look at that, just guesstimating on those on the chart that you're showing, the 50 plus the 11, which is already on floating, plus the pink line, which is one to two years. Actually, we've got about 80% going on to the new interest rates over the next couple of years in an increasing interest rate environment. Yep, 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 yep. It's, uh, and, and that's the thing, that's, that's the double whammy, I guess, where, where you know, not only are rates rising, but, but people are rolling over. And I suppose there is, there is a slight softener to this in the sense that we don't, what, what the chart on the right is telling us is that you know, there's a bunch of loans due to refinance. What we don't know is when they were taken out. And so there'll be some loans in here that were taken out five years ago, three years ago even, before COVID, in a period where interest rates were higher. So they might be rolling off, you know, a 6% interest rate anyway into a 6% interest rate. So they might not notice any change. They could even see a saving. So there is that as well. It's not It's not like everybody has been on a one-year rate. They've been rolling over one year, one year, one year. There will be some people who are fixed further back than that. Actually, that's a really good point, Calvin, because when I look at the chart on the left with the two-year fixed rate, you sort of forget that pre-COVID actually rates were you know, around where they are now, this, this sort of time warp of three years has been obviously, you know, uh, a quite a different interest rate environment compared to what it was before that and where rates were, yeah, a two-year fixed rate was up where we are at the moment, four and a half, five percent. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and that's the thing we don't necessarily know from these stats is, is when people took out the loans. Um, you know, there's, I mean, a lot of people have been going on those short fixes one or two years, so so they will be will be exposed to higher costs. But 
be some people who, who won't see as much change and also there'll be some people who when they saw interest rates falling uh, during COVID um, took the chance to pay off their loan faster. So, you know, they've, they've got ahead of the curve and so um, might have kept their payments the same anyway, even as interest rates fell. So when interest rates go back up, they might uh, might not see any change. So there's you know there, there's always uh, two sides to the coin, but um, but this is certainly a big a big factor in the market, no doubt about it. So yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll watch that with patient breath, I guess. And then credit itself, harder to get again. Uh, I, I guess these three factors so far, everybody could have almost guessed themselves. But you know, there's there's this tighter credit, huge issue. Triple CFA has, has obviously been having a big impact. Some banks now enforcing debt to income ratio caps, even without the Reserve Bank officially mandating it. So there's there's that credit tightening aspect too. And loan to value ratio rules to talk about the speed limit having been cut already. So there's there's a lot of things coming together all at once. And so when you when you take a step back, it's sort of no surprise that the market's slowed. Probably what's surprising is that it took this long to slow. Um, but but now it certainly is. So a couple of charts here. I mean just a little bit of illustration around the debt to income ratio caps are on the right-hand side. Now, there's you know, the, the consultation on debt-to-income ratio caps has only just finished. Uh, apparently, this, the, well, we'll, we'll wait and see what the results of that were from the Reserve Bank. They suggested initially there could be another consultation before they officially get around to doing something about debt-to-income ratio caps, perhaps the end of this year. So, you know, don't expect an official debt-to-income ratio system anytime soon. And I suspect that, think what the market's going to look like by the end of the year. I, I, I suspect that, yes, Reserve Bank has the debt-to-income ratio tool in its toolkit, but I just think, I, I, I'd be surprised if it's used in this cycle because they're not going to get around to it till the end of the year anyway. The market's going to look very different by then. It just feels a, a bit too much of a stretch to think they'll go and put another credit restriction in place at the end of the year. So, so um, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect that to come in. If and when it does come in, chart on the right just illustrates that it's going to hit investors hardest because about 50% of the time investors are taking out a loan at a high debt to income ratio so you know more in other words investors do tend to take out debt to, high debt to income ratio loans more often so any any tightening up of that will hit them harder than, than owner occupiers so, so yeah that's a bit of context but um, don't necessarily expect any great movement on that anytime soon the chart on the left is probably the more interesting one in terms of, of current what's happening now. So this is breaking down high LVR lending, looking at or looking at high LVR lending across investors and owner occupiers, investors in purple there. Um, no surprises that that purple line's been low for a while. Pretty much as an investor, you've been unable to get if you don't have a forty percent deposit. Pretty much haven't been able to get a loan now for for a fair while. What's changed is the owner occupier one. So that you know that low deposit speed limit has been tightened for owner occupiers um, now down to ten percent, which is indicated there in, in the dotted blue line. Look what's happened in the past few months. That that what's actually happening that dark blue line has just that's just slumped in that in that red circle there. So so we're now so the speed limit's ten percent, but the banks are actually operating only operating at about five percent. So um, you know only every uh, what is it only one in every twenty owner occupier loans. Is going out at a low deposit, uh, well below the speed limit. So yeah, there's there's a they're keeping that buffer between between the speed limit and what they're actually doing in practice. So it's got pretty hard for people to get that low deposit loan. So um, so yeah, real real 
sharp tightening of debt in, in that in that regard, and possibly you know could go further if, if, if your anecdotes are heard here and there is that it's it's not just five percent; it's almost been impossible to get a low deposit loan. So over the next month or two, could see that dark blue line head head close to zero. So yeah, there's been a really sharp tightening of credit, as well as higher costs, as well as uh, an unaffordable market. So it's, as I say, probably in some ways the surprise would be that it hasn't slowed sooner. Um, listings rising, I've, I've covered this off already. Just a couple of different charts here, I guess, to, to make the point. I've aggregated up to the national level here, talked earlier about here, it's not the, the rise in total listings on the market isn't so much due to an influx of new listings, more to sales falling away, and that's allowed stock to be replenished. Chart on the left here just shows the new listings picture. So, um, so the pink line there, or peach, whatever it is, for 2022, it's just been normal. You know, it's taking along at normal levels. If anything, it's maybe been a bit below. It's starting to turn a little bit early this year. Could be some Omicron in there. Agents might be off sick, people not listing. So, so you know, if anything, it has been a bit lower than normal, um, but but sort of ticking over. The rise in total listings has been due to, to a fall away in sales. Uh, and and the, the rise at the national level is, is just illustrated on the right-hand side here. Total properties listed for sale, you can see, is, is rising. It's above where it was this time last year, but still below where it was in 2020. So, you know, we've got a little way to go yet on the listings picture, but at least things have turned around. Buyers will be feeling a bit more choice, and that's shifting the power. Subheading here, no surprise to see a buyer's market second half of the year now. Some parts of the country, when I talked about Wellington earlier, I suspect we, we could be there already in terms of a buyer's market and people putting in some sneaky offers, getting them accepted. I've heard that type of thing in other parts of the country too. So so we could be there, and depending on where you are. I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath that this will be a quick process everywhere though, because keep in mind, most sellers don't have to sell. If they don't get their asking price, they they they'll just wait, things might sit for longer, might pull the listing altogether. So wouldn't necessarily expect a sort of wholesale shift into a buyer's market sort of overnight, uh, but certainly a trend to watch out for over, over the rest of the year. And then it's, it's not just listings amongst the existing stock or properties being put on the market. It's also that we're simply getting more dwellings. We have more houses, new supply is, is being built, a lot of new properties coming to market. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's listings, but it's also physical houses where we're getting more properties. And uh, this chart here is just illustrating new dwelling consents around the country. Uh, high profile in the media, again, is, is new dwelling consents. It's been that way for a while. The, the dark blue line there, annual running total for new dwelling consents, record high, sort of pushing 48, 49,000. And smaller dwellings is, is a big component of that. So the, the purple line is, is the, the share of the total. It's represented by townhouses, apartments, flats, that, that type of thing. And that's running at a record high too, pushing 50%. So we're, we're building a lot and we're building a lot of small dwellings intensifying the housing stock. You know, you'd see it around Auckland with the unitary plan, knocking down big houses on a, or big old houses on a big section, putting in townhouses. So we're really intensifying that stock. Um, early figures we see on Greenfields, Greenfields development or opening up of subdivisions, there's still a bit of that coming through. So I think the, the outlook for construction is still still okay. Uh, we've got we've got the tax system is favouring new builds now. We've got the LVRs favouring new builds. So there's reasons to think that, that the outlook for construction, bear in mind that construction is a notoriously sort of 
of boom and bust type sector, and we've seen big downturns in the past. I suspect that there's, these rule changes put, perhaps put a little bit of a, uh, excuse the pun, but a bit of a floor or a, or a foundation under under the construction sector from here on, and, and perhaps higher than where it used to be in the past. However, big elephant in the room, costs, and you know we know construction costs are up massively. Um, I, I suspect we're pretty much right at the point now where where householders are starting to get a turn, starting to get turned off the new build path, um, thinking, oh, that's too expensive or uh, too much hassle. Or, I, I don't want to wait for materials. All the banks not giving them the finance in the first place. So just some signs we're at that turning point now. And um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd expect these new dwelling consent numbers to start to tail off simply as people uh, decide not to build a house. However, I think we'll still get a lot of new supply. Think about how many consents have already been approved. There's so much in the pipeline that we're still going to get a lot of these new houses. It's just that over once this current bulge is worked through, you know, there could be there could be less activity after that as consents tail off. All right, and then not a major downturn. So hopefully, again, this isn't semantics, but you know, for us, it's slow down, not downturn. And and really, we've we've probably covered off these things already in, in the general discussions. For me, the economy is still okay. You know, there's some resilience there. Most people are in work. The unemployment rate's low, uh, a record low, in fact. And so with unemployment low, and as I talked about earlier, with those serviceability tests in play, you know, people, sure, they might be, Paying five percent, but they've been tested at six and a half or seven. So, so as long as as long as unemployment stays low, I think people will will adjust, and you know we, we should be able to avoid a, a real sort of major downturn. Also, keep in mind around that supply situation, which I've annotated down the right hand side here. Bear in mind that we needed all these new houses. We started from a point where we were short of housing, um, so we needed a lot to be built, uh, and also it's. A, Dwelling consent's one thing, but we're also knocking a lot down. So really what matters is the net change in housing stock, and that's changing less than, than dwelling consents would tell you. So, you know, we're knocking down houses. Yes, we're building a lot, but we're losing some as well. And so the net change in housing stock is smaller than, than what dwelling consents would tell you. So that's sort of a reason to, to, be, to be a little bit more optimistic about the house price outlook as well. So that's... Where we're at, I think we're doing okay for time. Yeah, for me, it's so slow down, not downturn, at the risk of being on about it too much. But um, for me, the, the fundamentals, I guess, are a sort of balance. You know, if, if you think on one hand, you've got higher mortgage rates, you've got tighter credit, you've got stretched affordability, those are sort of negatives. But then on the other hand, you've got low unemployment and the serviceability rates are there. So for me, they're kind of balanced. And unfortunately, as an economist, I like to quantify things. I think what might start to become important is the psychology of it, the expectations and the mindset. And I, and I can't quantify that and, and, you know, it can turn quickly. And, and I think it, it that could start to become a really crucial factor is, is what people think is going to happen. And that could be the thing that actually produces a downturn even if even if the fundamentals are still there. You know, you imagine headlines start to come through of a few job losses here and there that can snowball and, and changes people's mindsets. So so those two things joined together, I guess, are the things I'll be watching. What's actually happening to unemployment and how people are sort of reacting and perceiving it. So I can quantify the unemployment rate, but not the psychology of it. So unfortunately that's the one that we have to apply a bit of uh, art rather than rather than science.
But uh, yeah, all the things down the left hand side here, I, I will have I will have covered off. Um, credit's hard, you know, listings are changing. In that sense, that we might not see a shift to a buyer's market straight away because there's no real forced selling pressure. So, so you know, vendors for, can can hold on; they can wait longer, they can pull that listing. So, I don't expect a wholesale change, but certainly that mindset is, is shifting a little bit. In terms of forecasts, well. In terms of sales volumes, our, our little model on the right-hand side here just, just illustrates where we think things will go in terms of sales volumes. The purple bars there being being the, the total forecast for this year and next. And you can see they're lower, uh, lower than where they've been, but not a disaster. So it's that sense that it, this, is a, this is a slowdown, but it's not a big slump. Those totals for 2022 and 2023 are still higher than um, back in the GFC, you know, some of those years around there. So it's, you know, yes, it's slower, but it's, it's not a complete blowout. And then in terms of house prices, well, we've seen 25, 30% growth in 2021. I'd expect that nationally to slow to, to let's say zero this year, low single digits, one or 2%. So you're talking about a very sharp slowdown with house prices really flattening off, um, but growth at the aggregate level not turning negative. Um, so we're still in that sort of slowdown camp. Got to acknowledge there's some economists out there at, at the banks now predicting house price falls, you know, 5%, 6%, that type of thing. You know, if you take a step back, you'd probably almost call that a soft landing too. Think of how much, how, how big the gains have been. And, you know, if, if house prices even fell 5%, you're only really reversing a few months of growth. You're only getting back to where we were middle of last year or even say September, October last year. So it's so it's pretty small. Um, so I, I think really if you take a step back, most people are still anticipating a reasonably soft landing. That's at the national level. I would just point out that you know obviously an average, let's say the average house price growth goes to zero this year, that means some will be above, some will be below. So you know not saying everywhere will avoid falls, some will actually see continued growth, uh, but some will see falls. And, and I suspect areas that are vulnerable are probably uh, your smaller areas. I'm um, thinking here of around the central and lower North Island in particular, uh, some of those smaller TAs, Rupehu, Tararua, these are areas that have seen massive growth, um, sometimes without population to back it up. Um, perhaps they've seen a huge influx of investors and that could be vulnerable to a, to a few sales. So you know, if anywhere is, not saying anywhere is a disaster, not saying anywhere is safe either, you know, there's always a spectrum. And if you're trying to think about areas that could be vulnerable, uh, I'd, I'd be thinking about those smaller provincial areas as opposed to the big centres that yes, have some challenges of course, but but a perhaps better position than those smaller provincial areas. So, um, so yeah, at the aggregate level, kind of expecting things to flatten out, but there'll still be some markets going up and some going down. So, so yeah, just I suppose those ones that are vulnerable, it's a case of, of you know, a bit more research and a bit more, a bit more due diligence. Uh, and that's it from me. So I don't know if, you, if we have some questions or comments or... Calvin, that's a fantastic overview, and I think it, it really emphasises some of the risks there, but also that it's not a... You know, complete disaster when I that you know some of the perhaps the media are speculating, which they're always good at doing around around uh, what's going on in the housing market. Given when when push comes to shove, there's still there's still a, a huge demand versus the available supply. You know, and as you say, each area is different, but it's uh, in the end, supply demand wins out when when there's population that that needs housing and 
there is building, but there's a lot of demolition, like you said as well, and 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 interest rates are only going back to where they were perhaps a couple of years ago. So it's some some, I guess, comfort in that, but it's also we have to rely on what's going on in the economy to, that will be the real driver, and that's unemployment. When it kind of goes back to that Bill Clinton, that's the economy stupid, and 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 I guess that's what what the message is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and and and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think there's you know we are looking at a definitely a different market. You know, this is this is a market that has some vulnerabilities. There's there's rising interest rates. There's that refinancing profile. Affordability is stretched. So so yeah, there's there's definitely some challenges. And like I say, I wouldn't rule out house price falls in some parts of the country. Um, but but yeah, there's there's with unemployment low. You've, I mean, if you look back through time, we've only in the, in the past say 20, 30 years, we've only had really two or three what you'd call downturns, I suppose, in, in the housing market. We'd run around the GFC, uh, around the Asian financial crisis, and, and then you've got to go back to the kind of early 90s to um, sort of a little bit before my time, but I, I think that, you know, government restructuring, fiscal restraint, I think the mother of all budgets back then. So there was there was sort of these major kind of economic events. You, you need something pretty, pretty big to really get house prices to fall. Even then, the biggest fall we've had was around the GFC, and that was, I think, 10% from peak to trough. So, you know, and, and then you put that into the context of, of what we've of where we've come from, you know, think about something as as significant as the GFC. We still only saw house prices fall ten percent. Put that into the context of where we are now. I mean, that that might get us back to mid the levels of mid last year, something like that. So, you know, this isn't a this isn't a complete blowout. Um, it's, it's, I think even at ten percent, it would still be still be a sort of soft landing. And and also because people have. Uh, you know, keep, keep most people, even if you've been able to get in with less than a 20% deposit, you've still probably been unlikely to get in with less than 10%. So, you know, you'd say that even the most recent borrowers will have at least 10% equity in their homes. So if house prices go down 10%, sure, not great for them, but, you know, they still should be more or less on a par at worst. Um, and if they keep a job, don't have to sell, then, you know, they can just ride it out and um, prices recover. So, See, so, yeah, I'm still, uh, I'm still just in that camp that thinks this is this 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 can be a can be a soft landing. But watching the unemployment rate and watching the mindset, which is hard to quantify, but I think will will matter. Well, on that note, Kevin, really appreciate your comments and, and thoughts this morning. Thanks so much for taking us through that. And perhaps in a in a in a quarter or so's time, we'll have a bit more a bit more data of what's actually going on. You can. Uh, Tell us if um, if if, our, if your gut feeling was right or not. Um, but the data certainly suggests what you're saying now makes sense. So thanks so much for your thoughts. No worries, no worries. So um, do, do you want to? I could I could flick in the slides. You want to circulate them around? Is that a? That would be fantastic. Yeah, we'll 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 circulate the slides to everybody on on the, the Monday call this morning. Thanks so much. Okay, no worries. All the best. Okay, have a great week. Okay, see you later. And just with three minutes to go, I just wanted to comment quickly on what's going on in markets given the volatility. So obviously, as we all know, and we would have seen over the weekend, the tragedy in the Ukraine continues. And look, all, all our hearts go out to the people of Ukraine, and it's a, it's a real uh, um, tragedy what's going on from a uh, personal point of view uh, and the people involved. However, I want to also reaffirm that we do not hold any Russian assets in the portfolios. We didn't before the Ukraine invasion started and, and we don't now. 
And so that is something that we will obviously uh, make sure uh, continues. And also that is also the case with our external investment partners who we partner with also don't have any of those assets within the portfolios. What you also would have seen over the weekend is very high petrol prices. And uh, it's the first time I've seen, uh, I think ever, uh, petrol prices hit over the $3 a litre mark uh, for 91. And that's obviously a direct reflection of what's going on with global oil prices. I think it's just worth emphasizing that we mitigate this inflation within the portfolios by buying commodities. These are the best performing asset class during inflationary environments. We've bought a modest amount, which we buy via options to reduce the volatility, and we do it in a diversified way over a number of different commodities, including energy, metals, agriculture, and soft commodities. And this really is the driver of what's going on within the portfolios at the moment, especially across the inflation and growth portfolios, where you're seeing some capital stability as share prices are remaining incredibly volatile, but commodity prices are obviously tracking up. Now, I just want to also emphasize that we don't invest in commodities because of some geopolitical situation. There is a long-term supply and demand uh, dynamic within commodities that we talked about at length all the way through last year that is really coming to fruition at the moment. It does also help uh, hedge the portfolio somewhat when you go through these events like what's going on in the Ukraine and, and difficulties around oil exports and, and sanctions and, and higher oil prices. But this is a theme that we're going to have within the portfolios over a number of years. And, and we see the benefits of being able to invest in a number of commodities uh, across the spectrum being really beneficial in terms of uh, the ability to generate returns even in a volatile share market. So that's the most important thing we wanted to pass on at the moment. We've also this month got the Federal Reserve talking about interest rates. They're likely to increase interest rates in the US, but there is discussion that perhaps it's not going to be to the extent as they perhaps were once going to, given given what's going on in global events. But with an inflation rate at the, at the height of uh, uh, of where we've seen for some time, uh, we do think interest rates in the US are going to continue to increase. And what does this mean for share markets and bond markets? Well, that puts at least share markets under considerable pressure. If you've got geopolitical events, you've got raising int rising interest rates, you've got consumers who have rising mortgages and rising costs, and including uh, petrol prices, it really starts to put a little bit of pressure on what's going on in the economy into the second half of the year in the US, but also that does reflect on the global economy. And so that's why what we talked about in the Monday call last week with being uh, conscious of this rising inflation, rising interest rates, but also volatility in share markets as the economy goes through some ructions to reflect what's going on. And, and so that's how we reflect those thoughts in the portfolio by being able to buy these other asset classes and not just be at the mercy of what the share market does. On that note, I hope you enjoyed the uh, update from in the property sector. That certainly is going to have an effect on the consumer in New Zealand. And again, that's why we uh, make sure that we are invested globally and not just reliant on one single market. Any questions or, or uh, thoughts that you have following these uh, Monday calls, do get in touch. Otherwise, look forward to speaking same time, same place next week. Have a great week, everyone. 
This has been the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.